This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Terramont Plus. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a Castbox original produced in partnership with our friends at Studio 71. Castbox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, and all of your favorite podcasts are there, ripe for the downloading. Sacred Symbols is available wherever you get your podcasts, of course, but we hope you'll give Castbox a shot. We think it's pretty rad. To get each episode of Sacred Symbols three days before the public, completely ad free, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com/slash Collins Last Stand. Perks for support include not only getting the show early and ad-free, but you can also gain access to monthly exclusive podcasts, and supporting on Patreon is the only way to get your listener mail read on the air, and much more. Plus, supporting Sacred Symbols on Patreon also nets you perks for other Collins Last Stand shows automatically, including the Nostalgia and Retro Podcast Knockback, the YouTube series dedicated to gaming called SideQuest, and the eclectic interview podcast Fireside Chats. Thank you for your generosity, kindness, and support. Without you, Sacred Symbols and all things Collins Last Stand would not exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 29. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my co-host, near death, Chris Raygun. Yeah. I feel horrible. <laughs> well, thank you for being here today. You have some sort of influenza, perhaps? Some I don't sort know, of man. I feel like, I, I, feel like I, I was hit by the the speed bus. You know, the bus from the film Speed sure. with, featuring Keanu Reeves. Sure. Who could forget and, that? And uh, Sandra Bullock. Yeah. That's what I feel like. You feel like you were hit by the bus that can't go below 60 miles an hour, I think it was? Yeah. Okay. I feel like I was hit by an exceptionally fast bus. Okay. So you don't feel like the bus? No. You don't feel like you're moving real quick? No, no, no. The opposite. Okay. If well, anything. Fair enough. Well, thank you for being here. I did give you the option of delaying this episode a little bit, but we did just discuss that. I think you probably are only going to get worse. Yeah, your no, your condition's only going to get worse. <laughs> so only, I am only deteriorating. So we're going to wish you best as you heal and all of this. And we thank you for being here. And we thank all of you out there for being with us on Sacred Symbols as well. The Internet's most beloved and dare I say, hmm, sexual PlayStation podcast is what I'm going to say today. I don't really have any reason how many data that would prove that either of those things are true you don't need reasons no i don't i can say whatever i want on the show <laughs> and it really doesn't matter at all we appreciate all of you guys being here remember every episode comes out on tuesday ad free and three days early on on patreon at patreon.com slash collins last stand i almost had a little bit of a seizure there when i was saying that and uh you can listen on free feeds as well with ads and three days later but we do su- appreciate your support on patreon it's essential for us to continue to do this Good news, we put up two stretch goals on Patreon in regards to Sacred Symbols. One was to reach 5,000 subscribers, and we'd start doing a Let's Play or two every month for Sacred Symbols. And the second goal, which is 5,500 subscribers, we'll start putting Sacred Symbols on video. We reached the first goal already, so next month, assuming everything stays as it is, and I assume it will, we'll start doing one or two Let's Plays on YouTube. 
every month for sacred symbols. I think I kind of want to aim them around bad PSN games and uh, the further deterioration of Chris's mind through those games. So we'll see that. So that's exciting. Yeah, no, I'm excited about that. If you want the show on video, that's our next goal. So do support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stand if you choose. Speaking of videos, Chris has a new video up on his YouTube channel. It's been about two months since you put up a video, so it's a yeah. pretty big deal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while. How's it doing? It, it was funny. I watched it in bed yesterday when you put it up. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's doing well. It's over over 200K right now, which is pretty good. That's all. It's more traffic than I get day. in a month. So that's great. <laughs> well, my YouTube channel does anyway. Yeah. That's awesome. Good for you. No, I'm, it, it, I'm super happy with it. It, yeah. it took a, a long time, and uh, I'm just uh, I'm proud and happy that it's finally done so I can stop looking at it. Usually, I'll watch it again after it's out just to make sure everything's fine. But like the second I finished it, I was like, I'm, I'm, I don't want to look at this anymore. I've yeah. been looking at it for so long. We have a few letters that I want to start with today, right, Chris, before we get into the news, because we have some things we want to talk about. We've been playing and then we have lots of news to get through. There's a lot of news on this episode of Sacred Symbols. But I wanted to start with four different letters that I think touch on a few things we should talk about. Chris Barnes wrote into us. And remember, you can write into us by supporting us on Patreon. He says, Colin, I just wanted to thank you for introducing me to CastBox. I've been bouncing around between different podcast apps over the last couple of months, and CastBox is the one that finally has all the features I'm looking for. So good job on aligning yourself with a good product. However, I really need for you to re-record the ad read so you can finish it by singing Rock the CastBox. Now, I'm not going to allow that. That's, of course, a Clash reference. And I appreciate that, Chris, but I'm not going to do that. But I did want to bring this up, Chris. Chris Raygun, not Chris Barnes. For people that listen on Patreon, you would have never noticed, but we've aligned ourselves with CastBox. We are a CastBox original over the last, I don't know what it's been, like 10 weeks now or something like that. And it's cool. They're not paying us for this shout out. I'm reading this to say that it's actually been really cool, the positive feedback we've been getting about this alignment, that people actually enjoy the product, which is great. So I wanted to say that just because we obviously advertise other things and ads play that we don't really control in this mm-hmm. podcast as well. Always give us your feedback, positive or negative, on the advertising. So we can continue to give that feedback to the powers that be and make sure that nothing's getting out of control. So I appreciate that, Chris Barnes. Chris Reagan has nothing to do it's with it. too you. many Chris's. This is a too common name. It is in the sense that I know uh, smorgasbord of Christopher's, right? Yeah. And I'm always interested in when parents have children. See, if I ever had children, I'd want to pick just the most absurd and maybe even damaging name for the child. <laughs> like because it, it's, your like one sh- it's your one chance, right? <laughs> you know, like Christopher is very safe. Michael, very safe. These are it great. Is. These are fine names. Robert, very safe. But they're fine names. But you could name your child Donald Trump Maldonado, for instance. Yeah, that's his first name, Donald right, Trump. Right, Donald Trump is his first name. Or like right. Ozymandias. Right. Or something absurd. Right, exactly. Something just totally made up. So God forbid I ever have children because they're going to they're gonna be touched by this very phenomenon of giving them a name. <laughs> so there are not so many X's in the oh, world. God help you understand him. what I'm saying? God help him. Steve Jula wrote into us and said, hey, Chris, what are your thoughts on sour cream and onion chips? Apparently, Colin is an awful human being and doesn't like them. I think this might be the real reason he gets so much hate on the Internet. Thanks and keep being awesome unless you also dislike sour cream and onion chips. So I think I talked about this with my brother on Knockback, but this really stuck in Steve Jewell's craw. Yeah. And I was curious, Chris, what you think of sour cream and onion chips. Keeping in mind, you can only answer this question once and there are no takebacks. No, I, I hate them. Okay, <laughs> I, don't, I don't like them at all. It's a heinous flavor. It's I don't know who, who thought that was a good idea. Sorry to disappoint you, but uh, Steve, absolutely not. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Is it true that sour cream ruins everything it touches? I think so. Yeah. I think it's a valid theory. Yeah. It's very weird. Sometimes it doesn't really taste like anything, and then it kind of sneaks up on you. Like if it's a nachos or in a burrito, totally ruins anything it touches for me. No, exactly. It. It's like a poltergeist. I don't like the name sour cream. I don't like that name. I don't like its fucking look, the cut of its <laughs> jib. The cut of its jib. I don't like any of it. 
Andres Alvalos, or I'm sorry, Avalos wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, Colin, last week, I believe I heard you say you brought one of your nephew's vinyls. This pained me to hear, especially considering you're so well-spoken. The plural of vinyl is vinyl. Thank you for that correction. That was a needless correction, but you corrected me. I thought it was important. Well, you are very well spoken. It's it's a damn shame. I mean, how do I know? I didn't actually look it up. How do I know that he's right? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just totally taking his I'm word for it. I'm just assuming it. it. I, that sounds right to me, though. And finally, Eric Clyde wrote into us and said, hey, CNC, I've been thinking a lot about your about both of your predictions for the PS5, and I feel I found a conundrum in your predictions. You both agree PS5 will increase the cost of standard games over PS4. You agree that the PS5 will be backwards compatible, and you agree that some upcoming titles will be available and sold for both the PS5 and PS4. How would you price a game that does this? Would the PS5 version cost $70 and the PS4 cost $60? Would you be able to play the PS4 version for $60 on your PS5? You make both make my dog walks much more enjoyable. That seems like a bit of a non sequitur, but I appreciate that. Yeah. Eric brings up a good question. We've been talking a great deal about PlayStation 5 in the past few weeks. How do we overcome this conundrum of pricing? I think it's probably a bit of a kink in the transitionary phase that they're probably going to have to figure out at some point. Uh, because it used to be that like when a game would come out on both generations, there would be one game that was completely different from another one. Like Spider-Man 3 was, it was the same game, but on PS2 and PS3, there were like different studios developing them and they were actually vastly different when you actually played them. So I'm, I'm really not sure what they could probably do. I think maybe, I'd imagine that the price increase is not going to start off immediately when the generation begins. I'd imagine it's probably going to happen at some point a little bit into the future of the life cycle, maybe like a year in when PS4 is less of a focus. That way it's probably not that big of a deal when the price goes up, but it's a good point. It is a perfectly good point. That's why I wanted to read Eric Clyde's point. It's a great point. I wonder if it can be kind of circumnavigated by making the digital copies. Obviously, you won't be able to buy digital. Well, actually, this is kind of interesting because if the digital ecosystem for PlayStation 4 is available on PS5, then you would even theoretically be able to download, say, Death Stranding came to PS4 and PS5. You should theoretically be able to download the PS4 digital version of Death Stranding on a PS5 that is native to PlayStation 4. So even the solution that I was going to come up with that you would just only make those digital games available on PS5 goes against the entire notion of backwards compatibility to begin with. This is a conundrum. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you, Eric. You've broken my brain. Now that we're through that, Chris, I wanted to get into what we're playing. You here have written on our planning document that you played the Resident Evil 2 demo, and I'm super excited to hear about this because this so-called one-shot demo yeah. is, a, is supposed to be phenomenal. And so I'm curious what you thought of it. I really enjoyed it. The atmosphere is like actually really... So like Keep in mind, I've, I haven't played... The original Resident Evil 2, I never played it on the original hardware. I played like one, three, and four, like most of them. That surprises me. Why did you skip two? I just wasn't really following it. I, I wasn't following Resident Evil as a franchise. I wasn't like a fan. I just like, oh, hey, I got a Resident Evil game from a friend of mine. I'll play it. Right. And two was just the one that just for some reason eluded me for a long time. So this is a f completely fresh take for me. It's really unnerving. It's really satisfying. I like the way the aiming works where you can shoot and move, but your accuracy is super sacrificed if you do. The only issue is I didn't actually get to finish it because... In my current state, I don't need to feel more unnerved <laughs> or more uncomfortable than I am right now. And it's super effective at making you feel really, really off put. There's this great gif out there of a zombie getting shot and him splitting basically in half. Oh, yeah. The, like gore, is, the gore is not held back at all. It feels very much like no, they're not pulling punches with it, which is super satisfying to see. Uh, there's this one scene where you're like pulling like a zombie up and its jaws like falling off. It's 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 super gruesome. And I'm I'm excited to get my hands on the full uh, the actual full skew. Well, me too. We should be getting it within the next week. But when as of the time of recording this. Looking back at my list, it comes out in like 10 days, so we should be getting it pretty soon. Maybe not quite 10 days, 11 days, 12 days. 
but yeah, we should be getting it soon. I'm super excited to play it. I didn't play the demo specifically because I'm just going to let it, you know, let it be fresh. I haven't played Resident Evil 2 in a long time. It's probably been two decades since I played Resident Evil 2. So the remake is very exciting. I'm excited to play it. Chris, you and I have both gotten codes for and I played extensively Animusha Warlords. So Animusha Warlords, for people that don't know, is a 2001. It came out in March 2001 in the States, a PlayStation 2 game from Capcom. And it was really one of the first important PlayStation 2 releases for those of you that were there at the time and remember this. I did a video review of the game. You guys can go check it out on my YouTube channel if you want to see more extensively the gameplay and stuff. But the point I make in the review that I think is salient to make here is that I didn't remember much of the game from a story perspective. And it in some way holds up just fine. Like graphically, I actually think it holds up. I was surprised by how good it looks actually. But there are gameplay conventions that we take for granted today that are simply unacceptable and not well, it's unacceptable not to use, I should say. And the constant fixed camera angles moving in Animusha makes the game kind of jittery, which I obviously didn't experience the first time I played it back when I was in 11th grade, which is when the game came out. So, you know, it's cool to have the game back. It's also available on Xbox One and Switch, but I've been playing it on PS4. I beat it in under four hours. It's super, it's super short. It's incredibly short. There's some replay value. There's a thing called, I think, the Dark Realm or something where you can go fight a bunch of enemies and there's trophies to get. And if you beat the game in under three hours and you beat the game without upgrading and stuff, there's a bunch of trophies. So Animusha Warlords, I I don't know that I recommend it to everybody. I think it's a good nostalgic trip. I think it's an encapsulation and ember of what games used to be and what big AAA games used to be. As I said in my video review, what I found so funny in the credits was that they used motion capture extensively in the game, which is... So funny because you you can't even tell, but it must have been so important (laughs) to their development. So if you guys want to go see what a PS2 game, like a launch era PS2 game looks like and played like this sort of mixture of Resident Evil and kind of the hack and slash conventions of the time and some light RPG elements, Animusha might be for you. But what do you think of what, you know, what little have you played of the game so far? I played very little of it before I got knocked out by NyQuil. So I, I, I don't have that much to say about it. But from what little I played, I thought the combat was actually kind of totally fine. What really tripped me up was was the cutscenes or the in-game cutscenes, because I noticed, I think you noticed it too, the jitteriness. But it's it's not even necessarily that the gameplay is jittery or anything, or, or necessarily that the animations are jittery. The character models are jittery. The first scene that you get to where you're picking up the princess or something and she's like half dead, <laughs> you're just shaking. It's it's like it's like you have Parkinson's. It's horrifying. <laughs> She's but, gonna get uh, shaken baby. But that syndrome. was the, that was the last thing I remember before I docked out. But <laughs> well, I'll be interested to see. Maybe we can talk yeah. more about it next week because it's it is one of those games. I'm not entirely sure. I should know this. I, I we did get it for free from Capcom, so I don't know. I saw on the drop that it's in at retail, which suggests to me that it must be more expensive than the 19.99. I assumed it would have cost. I don't know if that's what it costs or not. I have no idea. But it's hard for me to recommend uh, like full throated something that's so short and so archaic. But it's funny, when you fight the first boss, pay attention to it because, and people that are out there that play, pay attention to it. I think there's like six camera angles during the fight. Like, you just move in the game five feet and it's another camera angle. You move five <laughs> feet and it's another camera angle. It's a little disjointing. It's just the way it was. And for them to kind of freely move the camera in a, in the game, they would have really needed to have remade it. And this is not a remake. This is basically a port. They've up it. It runs at a solid 60 frames. It, it's in widescreen, which is new for us yeah. who were playing on CRTs back in the day. So anyway, that's Animusha Warlords. And I'm still playing through Far Cry Primal. I don't have much more to say about it. It's scratching that OCD itch that I have to just do every question mark, every quest, every collectible like a psychopath as I listen to you know, waking up with Sam Harris or whatever it is I'm listening to at the time. It's such a weird game. Like that, that game, I, I keep forgetting about it, that it was a real thing. It almost feels like a fake game. It does. Me. It does. And I wonder if that new game, and I'm turning around again, 
what is it called? Far Cry New Dawn. I have it on my list there. That's also the an interstitial Far Cry game, similar to Far Cry Primal, was kind of an interstitial between three and four. I probably were no between four and five, if I recall, it came yeah. out in early 2016. So New Dawn is a direct sequel, and that's a kind of a first for a full fledged product. And I wonder how it's if it's going to also feel weird. But yeah, the game is weird because it's so melee centric. You know, I use my bow and arrow, but it's just weird playing a game and like running up the guys and everyone's running yeah. around you. And it's just very chaotic and you're hoping for the best. Isn't it, don't they have like a fake language in that game? Where yeah, it's just like <laughs> which is pretty wild. I don't know if it's as deep as, you know, like the Dothraki speak or uh, language in Game of Thrones is like a real language, like someone made it. Right. I don't know if they went with a linguist and went that deep, but probably I, not. Probably not. I try to pay bet. attention to it, and I don't. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not much of a. I can barely speak English. So, Chris, let's get into the news. There's a lot of pieces of news that are of interest to both of us, and a couple that I really want to get your take on. But before we get into that, we should get into what I think is probably the biggest and most relevant piece of news for the audience at large. Number one, PlayStation 4's global sales numbers continue to astound. Sony revealed that as of la the last day of 2018, PlayStation 4 has sold 91.6 million units, including 5.6 million brand new PS4s sold to consumers over the holiday season, alongside 50.7 million pieces of new software. At 91.6 million sold, PlayStation 4 has easily surpassed PlayStation 3's lifetime sales of roughly 84 million units sold, not to mention PlayStation Portable's 82 million units sold. PS4 now has the original PlayStation in its sights, which sold more than 102 million units in its life cycle. PS2 and more than 150 million sold likely remains out of reach. PS4 software sales are also approaching a milestone. At 876 million games sold on the console, PS4 will almost certainly pass a billion games sold before all is said and done. PS4's attach rate is currently 9.6. That means that for every console sold, about 9.6 games exist on that console, which is extraordinarily high for an attach rate. PlayStation Network saw more than 90 million active users in the month of November 2018 as well. And I didn't write it down here, but Sony also revealed that Spider-Man has now surpassed and I think is approaching 10 million. I think it's past 9 million units sold now. Wow. So big game for them. Craig McGuire wrote into us on Patreon and said, hey, CNC, with the rise in service-based games with a never-ending lifespan that seemingly dominate the online market, Coupled with the runaway success of the PlayStation 4 that's showing no signs of really slowing down, could this potentially have an impact or a knock-on effect for the PS5? With the rumors of Microsoft having two SKUs for their next Xbox and at two price points along with the X playing future games, would Sony potentially make the Pro forwards compatible at, say, a mass market price point of around $200 be a far more risk-free strategy than simply pressing the reset button to zero like generations past? With these sales numbers, Chris, what do you make of PlayStation 4 either standing pat or trying to make some sort of kind of, I don't know, makeshift solution that will allow them to push PS5 out further to, so as to not stymie PS4 sales? It's a good question, honestly. I think it's probably likely maybe the Pro will probably act as the base PS4 going forward, and there's it's probably going to act as some kind of transitionary device, especially because the, the Xbox One X seems to be doing pretty well, and it seems to be having a pretty positive uh, user experience with it. This is the first that we've seen a console generation like this, so I, I really, predicting is kind of difficult. It's super weird. It is because it's getting modular almost. Yeah. Which is something that's very we, PC like. Yeah, exactly. Which is something that we predicted, you know, would happen years ago to consoles and still hasn't happened. Again, we've had modular consoles per se. The Genesis was an incredibly modular console, for instance. N64 was in its own way a modular console. Yeah. And even PS2 with the modem and stuff like that. But we've never gotten something that really like as if different power structures exist that play the same games. And it is interesting to think about a segueing PlayStation 4 ecosystem that basically abandons the PlayStation 4 slim model and instead kind of goes for a more pro like experience to kind of make up time. 
I think Sony would be wise to give themselves some distance from any new Xbox and to let PlayStation 4 breathe. But I also know that once the new Xbox is announced and comes out, the tides are going to change very quickly. Yeah. And so they should be ready. I still think, you know, fall 2020 for the release of the new console is is I don't know. I would say almost inevitable. Yeah, no, I would. I would agree. Number two. In a surprise move, publisher Activision and developer Bungie have parted ways amicably, with Activision releasing Bungie from its original four-game agreement and letting letting Bungie walk away with the rights to the coveted Destiny IP. Activision and Bungie originally signed a contract in the spring of 2010 for four Destiny games and four major Destiny expansion packs. Bungie roughly delivered on half the deal. From its founding in 1991 until present, with the exception of the period spanning from 2000 to 2007, Bungie operated as an independent developer. It was in Xbox's first-party family for the other seven or so years. Responsible for the Halo franchise's first four games, Bungie released MMO FPS Destiny in 2014, with Destiny 2 following in 2017. In the summer of 2018, Chinese tech company NetEase injected $100 million of new capital into the dev, buying a minority stake in the company as a result and making them less reliant on Activision in the process. According to many industry sources, and as reported on by Kotaku and others, Activision and Bungie haven't seen eye-to-eye since the beginning of their relationship, with both sides finding it difficult to balance the commercial realities of creating a game the size and scope of Destiny with the need for time to actually create the game properly. Both sides publicly put a good face on the split, but it remains to be seen what's in store for Destiny or Bungie beyond Destiny 2. This move was apparently very well received behind closed doors when it comes to Bungie, however. Kotaku reports that there was literal cheering and champagne drinking at Bungie HQ following the announcement. So we have some questions here, but let's just get into it before we even do it. How does this strike you? Because obviously you you texted me about this and I was doing some research and reading pretty extensively about it. I'm super interested in this from from both the Activision and the Bungie perspective. And I'm curious how this strikes you as a longtime Halo fan and a longtime Bungie fan, first and foremost. Yeah, no, I'm super happy for them. I'm excited about it because I've been a fan of Bungie for a while now, like since the Marathon games, since before I even knew what a developer was. And their culture as a studio is something that I've always like really jived with. It didn't seem like a coincidence to me that the second that studio started to fall apart, was the second they joined Activision. Mar- Marty O'Donnell got the boot. Uh, lead writer Joseph Stanton left a year before launch. It, it didn't seem like a coincidence that all of these major players would have suddenly, all of a sudden, had a problem if it was a bungee problem. Like, that seems unlikely to me. So the fact that th- that's a thing that's happening is is super, super exciting. Anybody that I know who's in the Destiny community is super ecstatic about it. I'm curious as to their ability to deliver as a self-publisher. I'm sure they're probably going to stumble with that because I don't think they've ever had to deal with self-publishing on this scale before. But I think ultimately in the long run, I think this is a positive thing. I'm interested in how positive it is for Bungie because Mm -hmm. the point I made online, which was not very well received, but it was a point I made nonetheless, is that Activision counts money better than anyone counts money. And they looked at this relationship. Now, they were never apparently going to own the Destiny IP. Apparently, that was always going to go with Bungie. So that's not a huge revelation. So it's very similar to Microsoft publishing Sunset Overdrive for Xbox One, but Insomniac owns Sunset Overdrive as an IP. They just don't own that particular game, I don't think. So for me, I look at it and I'm like, all right, I I have no doubt that Bungie fans and Destiny fans are stoked that they don't have to deal with Activision and kind of the money-hungry nature of Activision. But the money-hungry nature of Activision comes from a place of reality. Bungie and Activision are in the game to make money, and Activision would have never done this if Bungie was making a lot of money on Destiny, which they're not, or presumably they're not. So this seems, or not enough, I should say. So this not seems enough to for be, Activision to be happy with. Right, exactly. Yeah. This tension between them, you know, I've heard behind the scenes for a long time, and it's being talked about more openly now. This tension apparently is very real and, and has been 
going on with them for a long time. And you yeah. also have to remember that everything that Bungie delivered was late based on the original timeline of what they called Destiny and I think they called Comet. Comet being the run of DLC packs. Yeah, everything was delayed by a year. Yeah, I think everything was off by a year. So from the very beginning, Activision was dumping more money into this than I think they intended. Here's the thing that I'm troubled by and that I'm, I'm curious what you think. Bungie going without Destiny or going, you know, with Destiny on their own without Activision. The scene is not the scene in 2014. It's not even the scene in 2017. There's way more competition. And I wonder if Activision looks at this and is like, we were on to something originally with Destiny. We're not on to something anymore. And by the time we get to the fourth game in this lumbersome contract, we're going to have lo- we'll start losing money or have lost the plot here while these other guys are all jumping in with free to play games and these other kind of $60 robust division like experiences. And now they're playing games for hundreds and thousands of hours and Destiny has a harder time breaking in. I think the entire scene has changed. If you read the original contract that they signed in 2010, that was a very forward thinking contract. Yeah. And now if you read it, you know, almost 10 years later, it's not such a forward thinking contract. And it's important to note what you were saying is that Activision didn't technically own Bungie and Bungie wasn't technically with Activision. It's just that they had like a a reliance on each other that didn't allow Bungie to do other things. And now Bungie has this money from NetEase and a hundred million dollar incubation and is going to make a new game and all of that. I think that there's a lot in the air. My biggest thing that I'm interested in, too, Chris, is if they really do stay independent. And, you know, we're going to get into some questions that I think we'll explore. But I want to go with Kendrick Lukenbach. Kendrick Lukenbach wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, first time questioner, long time listener. What are your guys thoughts on the Activision Destiny split? It's fascinating, fascinating that Activision felt Destiny wasn't valuable enough of an IP to retain and allow Bungie to go indie. Chris, what are your thoughts for where Destiny could go from here? More Destiny 2 expansions turn it into a free to play platform with annual past content. And then he says, Colin, can Bungie survive as an indie studio? Are there any other times this has happened to another studio on the scale besides when Bungie divorced from Microsoft? But Chris, let's start with Kendrick's questions for you. Where does Destiny go from here? Do do they continue to support Destiny 2? Do they let Destiny 2 go free to play? Does Destiny become a free to play platform? Do we never get another Destiny game again? There's a lot of really interesting yeah. things to kind I, of conquer not, here. I think, I think we'll probably get another Destiny. I think what's going to happen is Destiny 2 is probably going to be continued to be supported because Destiny and, and Bungie as a studio in general has accrued uh, a very hardcore following. Like People who are fans of Destiny 2 are fans of Destiny 2. Like My roommates are huge into it. This isn't like a casual kind of like, oh, I'm just going to drop this game because Anthem's out or The Division's out. Like People are really invested in it. And I think the smart thing to do from that perspective is to cater to that audience because that's the audience that's going to keep you afloat. It's the audience that's going to persist onward. And I think this no longer shackled mentality is probably going to lead to a far stronger Destiny 3 that will likely get a bunch of new people on who probably otherwise might not have even thought about it because they're going to they're not going to have to hit some arbitrary date on a contract. They're not going to have to rush shit to make a holiday release window. They might release uh, the next Destiny in summer for all we know. Like, I don't I don't know. It's fascinating. It is super fascinating. And I'm interested in it, too, because and we'll get into it more in the next question, but I really do think about the financial realities of this. I think that people are a little too excited that Bungie's going without Activision and right now without a publisher because now they don't have a wallet anymore. Now, Bungie is obviously going to make money on the Destiny expansions and the IP transferring over to them. There's probably all sorts of financial benefit in the short term, but making a game like Destiny is really expensive and they don't have like a sugar daddy anymore now. Now they have to do it all on their own. So I think that they have to be much more deliberate. And he was asking if there's any other examples of this happening. The really, and you brought it up, when Bungie left Microsoft in 2007, that was a really big example of this happening. The example I brought to Chris, though, that I thought was similar, that came to mind immediately, was Square Enix's relationship with IO Interactive. IO Interactive is a studio that, that's responsible for Hitman. 
And Square Enix kind of brought them in, bought the company, bought the IP, and then let the company and the IP go amicably mm-hmm. with presumably no money exchanged. And so Hitman 2 that was just launched was actually, I think, a WB published game. And IO is kind of on their own with their own IP. So, you know, there are examples of this happening, but obviously it's the biggest example that we can possibly think of. Michael Steinmetz wrote into us on Patreon and said, hey, Colin and silly Chris with the Bungie Activision news. I've seen the same narrative of hooray Bungie Activision is the worst. There seems to be this narrative that the developer rarely does anything wrong and the big bad publisher is evil incarnate. The same thing goes with EA and Visceral Amy Hennig and Microsoft and Rare. So my question is this. Do you all think that the games media is quick to vilify publishers while giving a pass to developers? My answer to this is yes. Mm. Activision is not a stupid company. Now, you can think about what Activision is, what they mean how they make their money. They're certainly not a company that I'm very attracted to as a publisher. There are a couple of games every so often, like Sekiro is an example. They're somehow publishing that game. That's very much out of the ordinary for them, though. But Activision's no slouch. And, you know, they allowed this game to be made to begin with, with their money. They invested in this, so they have some sort of right over it. I know that people like to get up in arms, Chris, about Activision and EA and UB and whatever, but... These guys are the facilitators of the games being made, and so they should have some sort of production say in how the games go and how they're marketed and how they roll out and how they make money and all that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that the decisions Activision made with Destiny were the best for Destiny or Destiny fans. It seems like that's not the case. But I will say that Activision, the same Activision, puts out Call of Duty, the best-selling game every single year, and clearly does something right because they monetize it the same way. They fill it with microtransactions and DLC. Oh, for sure. Like, they know how to make money. Right. But I'm not sure they know how to make a proper beloved game. I don't think they've done that in probably a really, really long time. I can't think of the last super, super well-received, like, critically. Uh, And I don't mean, like, the oh, Call of Duty 9 out of 10. I don't mean, like, that critically uh, received. But... I can't think of the last, like, really influential Activision game. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think Destiny was probably it, actually. Yeah, Destiny was it. And, you know, back in the day when Activision wasn't such an evil word, you had the likes of Tony Hawk and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like they made the Spider-Man, they published Spider-Man. Right, exactly. I just feel like people are a little tough on publishers generally. I don't know if you're too tough on Activision, generally speaking, but Mm -hmm. I think generally people are too hard on the publishers. And I will also say this, and this might not be true for the Destiny community because the million strong Destiny community is so engaged by nature to their game. But no one gives a shit who publishes the games. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if even in the Destiny community, there was a massive number of people who thought Activision made the game because people are so detached from the difference between developer and publisher and people don't know and people don't care. I'm telling you that for lots of people that buy these games, they don't care. They don't know. Nothing will change for them. And so you have to kind of look into it for that reason, too. It's like EA winning the worst company in the world over yeah, and over yeah. again. Like nobody really on cares. the consumerist. Like no one. <laughs> first of all, no one believes that. Second of all, it's not true. Third of all, it didn't matter. Right. So we have to kind of look at it through that lens as well. We are very engaged, very engaged. That's true. But I will say this, like there are some roommates of mine who are into destiny, who don't follow gaming news at all, who don't, they don't listen to this podcast. God damn them. They don't, uh, (laughs) they don't read up on Kotaku. They don't read IGN. They don't know. They're not engaged at all. They're not on forums or anything. Uh, They woke me up and they were like, did you hear about this Activision Bungie deal? Which is what shot, which shocked me personally. Because I didn't expect them to talk about it. But I think the Destiny community is a, is a little bit more engaged than most people tend to give them credit for. And I think that's probably because they're so isolated. Anybody who isn't a part of it doesn't really get it. Even I don't really get it. And I'm kind of in it. So I don't know. We'll see. It, it, this, I'm mostly just like really curious and interested to see how this goes moving forward. And Edwin S. Castillo wrote into us with the final question that I think gets at the heart of something I'm most interested in, which is if Bungie will really stay by themselves. Yeah. He says, with the news of Bungie separating from Activision, what are your guys' thoughts on Sony picking them up? 
You guys are always saying how Sony lacks a studio dedicated to online shooters and who better to do it than Bungie. So I don't want to say that this is a real possibility because I don't think ultimately it is. I don't think it's in Bungie's best interest to go to a first party. They've already been in a first party family. And they didn't like it. And they were making like the, you know, cream of the crop first party game for that particular ecosystem. And they still didn't want to be there. But I don't think Bungie's going to remain without a publisher alliance for Destiny. I think what's going to end up happening is that Dest or Bungie will stay by themselves. So there'll be a studio like Insomniac or From Software or whatever that, you know, Platinum Games that are big studios that have relationships with other publishers but remain independent. So I think Bungie will get a publishing partner for Destiny because to your point, I'm not even sure it's financially worth it to them to go through the nonsense of having to publish a game because it's not just about physically manufacturing the game. It's about a lot of other shit that yeah. they never had to deal with before that they absolutely have to deal with. Like Destiny runs on on Activision Blizzard's servers on Battle.net, as far as I know. So it's a very weird scenario. And they haven't they haven't self-published a game since probably Myth 2. And that was like a huge problem. They sh it shipped out with like a game breaking bug that would like crash people's PCs. And it was like a whole million dollar like refund. Thing. It was, and that was back in the day when it was objectively way easier. Right. Exactly. So, uh, exactly. So, yeah, I'd imagine they'll probably stumble a bit and I'd imagine they're probably going to have some kind of lenient partnership with some other publisher uh, down the line. This is all so weird. <laughs> Especially because it's on Battle.net. I, I totally forgot about that. I was reading a little something. I think they might ultimately migrate over but they're staying there for now. Some people were talking about a first party buying Bungie or buying Destiny but allowing it to do the Minecraft thing where it's on everything. Yeah. To me, I just don't know. Like, yeah, Sony should try to buy Bungie. I mean, if, if it so would definitely, if, it's, a def it's definitely a good idea for Sony but Bungie would, I don't think they would go for that. I don't think it would be Bungie being like, hey, Xbox and PC players who've poured a lot of hours into our, uh, into our franchise. Sorry, I don't see it. I don't see it happening at all. If anything, Chris, I think this is a way for other publishers that, you know, Activision is the biggest of the biggest along with EA, but it would be a way, if anything, for another publisher, not necessarily a huge publisher like EA, but maybe a Square Enix or a UB to get involved and say, like, not only can we stick it to Activision here, but we can also use this as, and just be like, here's the money. Here's what you need. Just do what you want. We'll recover the gains on the back end and we'll get some good PR off this and people will like us and stuff like that. I think there's an opportunity there. But with companies that seemingly came out of nowhere and started publishing their own games, this is not necessarily an uncommon thing. And Bungie is one of the companies that didn't come out of nowhere. So maybe they will self-publish. I just think that it's not worth it. Like, it's just not worth it. Just yeah, give a little bit of the not. money to someone else. I think to take they care will for a while. I think they will. We're going to see how it all shakes out. Mm -hmm. That's a big piece of news. And we'll obviously follow the developments of that closely as we move forward. Here's another one that's a little bit weird. Number three. Yeah. Gearbox Software was founded in the late 90s and cut its teeth on Half-Life related expansions and ports before flexing into its own IP with Brothers in Arms beginning in 2005 and Borderlands starting in 2009 with some other development and publishing projects, including the infamous Aliens Colonial Marines sprinkled in there. But recently, its co-founder and CEO, Randy Pitchford, has come under legal fire. Website Kotaku reports that a man named Wade Callender, who was Gearbox's lawyer for nearly a decade and a personal friend of Pitchford's, filed suit on December 21st, alleging, among other things, that Pitchford essentially received a $12 million bonus against Borderlands profits that would have otherwise went to the team at large. Calendar also accused Pitchford, according to Kotaku, of possessing underage pornography. It's worth noting that Gearbox itself sued Calendar in late November for fraudulent activities. Pitchford, who was innocent of all claims against him until proven otherwise, has vehemently denied the accusations leveled against him through both statements released on his behalf and on social media. This news comes on the back of a Borderlands Game of the Year edition having leaked via the Taiwan Games Rating Board for release on PS4 and elsewhere, presumably through Gearbox's publishing arm. So before we get any further into this, I do want to just say state one more time. These accusations are pretty wild. And yeah, 
Randy Pitchford is innocent until proven guilty and vehemently denies all this. So I understand people like the so-called dunking culture online. And for some people don't have it in for Randy Pitchford. I might want to do a video on it because it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Randy Pitchford's like kind of like a villain, like a villainous character in the gaming industry. I don't really know how that happened apart from aliens. But we don't know what happened. It could be true. It could not be true. But I want to reiterate that because we just get. We're, you no, know. yeah, absolutely. You need evidence. We need to be vigilant about that. Right, exactly. And he denies it. He vehemently denies that it's true. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's newsworthy because it's getting thrown around. But I don't know if it, any of it's true. It could very well be a guy who is just counter suing and saying shit and whatever. Joseph Yaden wrote into us, Chris, and said, hello, Colin and Chris. Firstly, I wanted to say thanks for all you do. Producing a podcast each week is no easy task and your efforts have not gone unnoticed. Thank you very much, Joseph. What if I told you I produced three of them a week? Oh, Jesus. As for my question, what do you make of the whole Randy Pitchford lawsuit situation? It's something that's way outside of my wheelhouse, as I'm not familiar with the law enough to determine if anyone has a case with this. Do you think that the lack of a proper Borderlands 3 reveal has anything to do with this ongoing lawsuit? Your insight on this would be much appreciated. So I've known people that have worked at Gearbox. For people that don't know, Gearbox is in a place called Frisco, Texas. It's not a very big place, not very exciting. And from what I've heard, there it seems to be a, you know, and again, it's all anecdotal. There seems to be a decent culture there. But the thing that I remember being told by a couple people that work there is how really the bonus money flows there. That like they were paid lots of money for bonuses on Borderlands 2 in particular. Now, I don't know the veracity of that in an overarching way. I don't know how it feeds into the culture as being discussed in the lawsuit. I don't know if Randy Pitchford is guilty of anything that he's being accused of. But I do know from my perspective that them not announcing Borderlands 3 immediately, keeping in mind that Borderlands 2 came out Almost well, like eight years ago now, oh, geez, I think was wow. actually the reason that they're in. They seem to be in somewhat serious, you know, more serious shape than they used to be. And, you know, apart from that, I have no insight. They own weird IP like they own the Duke Nukem IP. They yeah. own like the What's that Homeworld? I think is that other IP they bought when THQ went under. They self-published a few games like they published Bulletstorm, I think, on PS4. Yeah, they do weird shit. And Borderlands 2 VR just came out on PSVR. From a corporate standpoint, they seem healthy. I don't know if Borderlands 3 is ever going to be announced. I think they made a huge mistake assuming people wanted something like Battleborn, which I predicted from the beginning is going to be a complete failure, and it was. So I don't know. I don't know about any of that. But what do you make of this Randy Pitchford situation, apart from the fact that it's kind of hearsay right now? Yeah, I mean, what do you say about it other than we can't really make a definitive statement about it if we don't know? Obviously, if this guy's accusing Randy of all this stuff, he, he better have pretty solid evidence. Otherwise... That's defamation, like, to the highest degree. Like, he would easily be able to countersue. Oh, definitely. It's, ins- it's such an insanely damaging definitely. thing to spread about people. But definitely. I don't know. I tried to look into it. I tried to look into what I could. But Randy has me blocked on Twitter for some, for some reason. I saw that. That's weird. <laughs> was, yeah. Why do you think that is? I looked after I saw that. I was like, am I blocked? And I wasn't. I think I met him once or twice. I don't. I mean, it was completely unremarkable. And I don't mean that against him because I don't really. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I think it might have been. I, a it's probably, probably blockchains. Yeah, they're pretty common. Yeah, I find myself blocked by people all the time. And I'm like, I don't know what I ever said to you, but that's fine. That's OK. You, it's your loss. Deval magic because you don't get to see what Chris Reagan has to say about anything. But yeah, I just think it's important for us to reiterate that. Yeah, he could be guilty of all of this and more. He could be guilty of literally none of it. I just think that we on the Internet in 2019, especially need to be more mindful of, you know, I know that there's a difference between the court of law and the court of public opinion, but these are pretty damning things. I mean, not only I mean, the child pornography things incredibly damning. Yeah. But so, too, is in basically embezzling money that was meant for your employees, which is basically as far as I'm reading the lawsuit, I think that I'm reading it properly is what they're saying. In other words, he took a twelve million dollar loan against profits that he basically took that would have otherwise went to the crew. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that doesn't resonate with what I've been told about at least years ago. 
the bonus money flowing in that place. Do we know when the when this thing is going to trial or like like what's happening with it? No, I think that the lawsuit was filed in late December of last year. The countersuit. Randy Pitchford's and Gearbox's lawsuit was filed in October or November of last year. So it's a suit presumably going to take a long time. I want to see what the, the facts are. Part of me right now feels for Randy Pitchford because it's like, let's assume he's not guilty of the charges. It's like, it's what another do you do one in that, that situation. Yeah, what do you do? Like, I, I don't know. The fact that he's not remaining silent and actually vehemently defending himself to me signals that it's maybe not true. I don't know. I have no fucking idea what's true. No one does. And yet you come down on one side or the other, and I just think it's inappropriate. So I just wanted to throw that out there. It's newsworthy. We'll keep an eye on it. But I felt like I was originally going to ignore that story, but I felt like we should probably throw it out there anyway. It's a big one. Under the caveat that we just don't know and that Randy Pitchford is absolutely innocent until proven guilty. Number four, Sony has revealed the most popular games on the PlayStation Store for the month of December 2018. The top 10 most downloaded games on PS4 for the month were in order. PUBG, uh, Call of Duty Black Ops 4, Grand Theft Auto 5, Red Dead Redemption 2, Battlefield 5, FIFA 19, Mortal Kombat XL, Spider-Man, NBA 2K19, and Madden NFL 19. On PSVR, the top 10 games were in order. Beat Saber, uh-huh. Job Simulator, PlayStation VR Worlds, Intel Dawn, Russia Blood, Farpoint, Arizona Sunshine, Borderlands 2 VR, Rick and Morty, Virtual Rick Alley, Super Hot VR, and Creed Rise to Glory. Beat Saber crushing it. I'm uh, happy to see that. Me too. You'll be even happier when we read the next part of the news. On Vita, the top 10 games were in order. God of War Collection, Jack and Daxter Collection, Metal Gear Solid 3, Snake Eater HD, Trillion Gods of Destruction, Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty HD, Mary Skelter Nightmares, Minecraft, Persona 3 Dancing, and Persona 5 Dancing Bundle. Bastion and Stardew Valley. And finally, number five. Well, this isn't finally, but I guess this is finally per this news item. Number five, Sony has also revealed the most popular games for all of 2018 on the PlayStation Store. For the entire year of 2018, PS4's 10 most popular games were in order. Call of Duty Black Ops 4, Red Dead Redemption 2, Spider-Man, God of War, Grand Theft Auto 5, NBA 2K19, FIFA 19, Monster Hunter World, Far Cry 5, and Madden NFL 19. For PSVR, the top 10 reads in order, Job Simulator, Beat Saber, Super Hot VR, PlayStation VR Worlds, Rick and Morty, Virtual Regality, Arizona Sunshine, Moss, Until Dawn Russia Blood, Drive Club VR, and Surgeon Simulator. And finally, the top 10 most popular Vita games for the year were in order, God of War Collection, Persona 4 Golden, Jack and Daxter Collection, Minecraft, Digimon Story, Cyber Sleuth, Hacker's Memory, Stardew Valley, Adventures of Mana, Bloodstained, Curse of the Moon, yeah, Metal Gear Solid 3, Stink Eater HD, and Undertale. So your boys, Beat Saber, you're, it's not, you're, they're not your boys because it's a game. Yeah. The game you like, Beat Saber. Yeah, I'm happy. Best-selling VR game or most popular VR game for December and the second most popular VR game for all of 2018. That's awesome. I'm happy for that team. Number six. This is an interesting one, Chris. Sony has quietly acquired a company called Audio Kinetic, an incredibly important company in development that will bring Audio Kinetic's expertise in-house for Sony's first party. If you've ever seen the name WYs before a game or in a game's credits, which you definitely have many times, then you'll know what Audio Kinetic is best known for. According to a press release from Sony, more than 500 games per year use WYs related tools, and Sony has no intention of keeping the technology proprietary, instead allowing its use by all interested developers even after the acquisition. The move nonetheless strengthens Sony's standing in the quiet but essential world of what's called middleware, various programs and tools beyond mere engines and code that allow games to actually be created. So you guys have definitely seen this logo. You know the logo I'm talking about. I think so. It'll be in the splash screen at the beginning of a game or in the splash screen in the credits, and it's W, capital W, and then Ys next to it, W-I-S-E. And they're basically audio tools. And good on Sony for buying it. I think it's smart. Good on Sony for allowing everyone to use it, including Nintendo and Microsoft. Yeah. And I wonder... Uh, well, it would look really bad if they didn't. They were like, you can't use this anymore. It I mean, would. It, it's weird how things are changing, though, right? I've said it about Minecraft, which is a little different, but 
when Microsoft bought Minecraft, I know you want to proliferate it everywhere, but it would have been a power move to say like, this is not on PlayStation. And I, I know that it's like a bottom line thing, but I think it's a gambit, you know, to say like Minecraft is just an Xbox game now and on PC, you can't play it on PlayStation. Sorry. You know, I don't know what you want me to tell you about that. And with this, I think, yeah, the optics would have been worse because these are tools that developers use and rely on, including certainly hundreds of games in development right now that are using those tools. Yeah. But Sony obviously saw a play here and I'm wondering what their play is because it reminds me of when Sony bought Gaikai, which people might remember. They bought Gaikai, I think, even before PlayStation 4 was announced for $400 million. And Gaikai ended up being the technology behind PlayStation Now. So I wonder if this technology, this company has something that we'll find out was useful in another way down the line for some maybe number seven thq nordic which literally refuses to stop buying minor and defunct ip oh my has acquired something new the austrian based publisher announced that the outcast ip is now under their control outcast is an adventure game that originally came to pc way back in 1999 its remake known as second contact came to ps4 and elsewhere in late 2017 thq's nordic's plans for the ip remain to be seen ryan cook wrote into us on patreon chris and says thq nordic has just bought yet another ip is thq nordic really just a front for some kind of illegal banking shenanigans, drug money laundering, human trafficking. Is anyone looking into this? I don't know. It's it's hugely suspicious to me. It's weird. It's not suspicious even from like the jo- obviously Ryan's joking about them being like, you know, doing illegal things. It's just suspicious it's from so a, many. It's just a suspicious from a business standpoint. Yeah. Like, what's the end goal? What's the, the, the philosophy behind this? These moves? Like, I just don't understand. I can't make heads or tails of it. I mean, when I saw that, I'm like, I don't even know what Outcast is. Not it was either. like one of the first things where I'm like, I don't know what that is. And Isn't I had to go look it up. the band that does Hey Ya? Yeah. That was the first thing that came into mind when I saw it. I was like, what? That's a, that's a game? What is happening? It's just weird. Like, my only assumption here, Chris, is that they're literally getting these IP for nothing. Like, the guys who owned Outcast were like, you can have it for $20,000. You know, at that point, I'd buy the Outcast IP. So I, my assumption is, is that that must be. I don't know how else to explain <laughs> it. Like, they must be getting nothing. Or they must be get, like the, the people that own these IP rather must be getting nothing for them. And they must have a lot of capital. You know, they're owned by a big company in Europe, but I don't know much more about it. I, I want to really research. I wish that someone at THQ Nordic would just reach out to me so I can just ask them a bunch of questions. But since we make fun of them so much, they're probably not really loath to do that to us. Number eight, though originally announced to be coming to both PlayStation 4 and PlayStation Vita in the West, it appears that publisher Atlas has conceded that Catherine Fullbody will only come to PS4 outside of Japan. The so-called full-body edition of Catherine is a re-release of the original Catherine, which came to PS3 and Xbox 360 way back in early 2011, and it comes packing some extras and reworked content. It will launch on Valentine's Day in Japan on both PS4 and Vita, but when it comes to the West later this year, the Vita iteration will be missing. How do we know? Because any mention of the Vita iteration, including logos, have been removed from the English language page for the game. Cameron O'Neill wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, Colin, I was wondering your take on why Catherine Full Body Edition has been added to the growing list of titles that were released in Japan on PS Vita, but not in the West. I was hoping you could shed some light on how that decision is made and why after going through full development to only pull the title at the last moment from release in the West. Thanks for all the hard work, guys. My assumption, Chris, is this has to do with something with what we were talking about a couple weeks ago, which is that there's a shortage of cards. And you would assume that Atlas maybe had two options here. Either they weren't going to publish them physically. I'm not even sure that they published the Persona dancing games physically that came out late last year for Vita. But apart from that, whether they did or they didn't, it could be the Vita card shortage. It could just be that they're looking at the numbers and they're like, we have to pay for this thing to be ESRB rated on this platform. We have to obviously pass QA. We have to pass all the certification things. It's simply not worth it for a copy of the game that is just going to sell 25,000 copies or something like that. My assumption is that's 
what it was. And it's hard for me to be mad at Atlas because they were one of the staunchest and biggest and longest lasting supporters of PS Vita. It's certainly not their fault. That no, PlayStation yeah, certainly Vita not. <laughs> has certainly not. fallen to the wayside. So that's my assumption, Cameron. I don't know. It's still sad because I was planning on playing it there. Now, I did see that some people were talking about importing the game from Japan on Vita. I don't know if people were talking about that because it is translated already on Vita in Japan, which is possible. If it is, then I will do that. Remember, Uncharted Golden Abyss, for instance, the launch Vita game was translated on the Japanese launch date. So you, I imported it in December of 2011 and played it on Vita before it came out here. I don't know if that's going to be an option here. It's certainly not, you know, going to be limited to Japanese Vitas. If you read Japanese, you can play it on your Vita in America. So there's no reason not to. But it is very sad. Number nine. To avoid further leaks that have already plagued the game, Square Enix has revealed its immediate post-release plans for Kingdom Hearts 3 once the game launches in the West on January 29th. News comes by way of the official Kingdom Hearts Twitter account, which notes that a day one patch on the 29th will start to deliver fixes and that video content will begin rolling out the next day, including some content that can only be accessed by beating the game. By January 31st, the game should be content complete in its launch form, but if you're without internet access for some reason, you'll be left without this footage, which is apparently important to the story. Glendon Cole Simper wrote into us on Patreon, Chris, and said, Hello, Colin and the illustrious Chris. Illustrious? Big Kingdom Hearts fan here, and I'm putting myself on the line as a whistleblower for the fandom. The truth is that it is almost literally impossible to make sense of the story. I've been playing these games since 2001, and I consider myself quite fond of the gameplay characters and the overall presentation of the games, but I honestly couldn't tell you a cohesive synopsis of the overall arching plot. And I dare say that nobody can. It makes no fucking sense at all. Thank you for all that you guys do. I tried so hard to understand it. I watched this like 30 minute or like I started to watch this 30 minute like summary of the plot. And from like two seconds in, I was lost immediately. It's, it's quite impressive, honestly. How I'm quickly only, you can get derailed from it. I'm only able to tolerate Kingdom Hearts to the extent that I'm able to tolerate it by not knowing because it creates a little bit of suspicion that maybe I'm wrong about it. So I don't want to look into it any further. But Kingdom Hearts... You don't want to know about the dandelions? I don't, I don't know what that means. See, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Neither I do I, possi- really. I couldn't possibly be any more ignorant about what that means. But Kingdom Hearts 3 is coming soon. I know a lot of you guys are excited about it. And this is basically to tell you that, you know, because a lot of the game leaked and people are scared about leaks for the story, even though, you know, we've been told here by Glendon Cole Simper that there simply is no way to spoil a game whose story is incomprehensible. Point taken. But this is to let you guys know that basically without Internet access, you can't get everything. So it's not going to affect many of you. But I guess they did this as a security measure. And I think it's pretty smart of them to do that. Unfortunately, necessary considering assholes like to leak things. Yeah, it's a shame. Number 10, an American trademark filing seems to indicate that Yaiba Ninja Gaiden Z or Ninja Gaiden Z may be making a comeback in some form. The trademark, which was filed on January 2nd of this year and which was dug up by Reddit users, is specifically for gaming software and was filed on behalf of Koei Tecmo, the original game's publisher and the Ninja Gaiden IP's owner. Yaiba originally came to PlayStation 3 and other platforms in 2014, after PS4 had already launched, and was an offbeat, arcade-oriented Ninja Gaiden experience created by Spark Unlimited, the now-defunct California-based team behind the likes of Lost Planet 3, Legendary, and Turning Point Full of Liberty, which is one of the worst games I've ever played. The new filing seems to indicate that the game is slated to be ported to newer hardware at some point, possibly in the near future. So you can look forward to that. I just got like a blast from the past with Legendary. I totally forgot about Legendary. Yeah, Legendary came out in 2008. Yeah, they were... Spark Unlimited really struggled. So Lost Planet 3 was a big game for them, but I think that was I think that was our last game, actually. And finally, a wrap up. Number 11, website Gamatsu reports that visual novel. So uh, this is Sony of Memories, but it's Song of Memories is slated for release on Western PS4s on February 1st. The website also reports that PSVR visual novel Tokyo Kronos, which I know you're looking forward to, Chris, has been delayed on PSVR and will now launch on March 20th. Animal Crossing meets Harvest Moon type game. My Time at Porsche is slated for a spring release on PS4 and 2D action RPG Dark Devotion, which looks pretty cool. will come to PS4 sometime early this year. 
The official PlayStation blog reports that Arena Brawler Hyper Jam is coming to PS4 on February 12th, and Trick Racer Future Grind will be coming to PS4 on January 22nd. Finally, website Push Square reports that SNK's 40th anniversary collection is coming to PS4 in March. Really looking forward to playing that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We have new game releases to read wow, for awesome. the first time in almost a month, so I'm very excited about this. Will you start or will you go second? I will go. I will start. I need to talk before my throat closes up. Okay. Ace Combat 7, Skies Unknown, comes to PS4 at retail. Become an ace pilot and soar through photorealistic skies with full 360-degree movement, uh, down enemy aircraft, and experience the thrill of engaging in realistic stories. Aerial combat has never looked or felt better. It's sorties. What? Sorties. Sorties? Yeah. Oh, what the heck? What is a sortie? A sortie is like when you send out a bunch of planes to fly a mission. Oh, what the heck is that? That's not a real word. Your dyslexia is really kicking in full gear. It's here, not, it doesn't help that I'm literally damaged at 50% health right now. Ace Combat 7 is a game that a lot of people are really excited about. I'm certainly not going to play it, but I know that a lot of people are looking forward to it. So I remember playing Ace Combat back in the day. It was, it was totally fine. Yeah, it's fun. Arcade, you know, flight sim. Not obviously mechanically sound, I assume. But yeah, out there for... Those of you who are looking forward to it, I know a lot of you are. As Divine Hearts 2 comes to PS4 and Vita, picking up two years after the events of the first adventure, one of Chris's favorite games, Zack and friends find themselves off on another quest, but this time to save the parallel world of Arkelio, which is on the verge of being frozen in ice. That sounds quite nefarious. The Grand Tour game comes to PS4 at retail. Ever wish you could get behind the wheel with Clarkson, Hammond, and May from the Grand Tour? <laughs> One moment you're watching the host attempt some questionable automotive antics. The next, you're at the wheel yourself. Same car, same location, same chance to make a massive mess of it. So this is based on the Grand Tour, which is the television show that is... What was that really popular show that this took over for? You know what I'm talking about? Why can't I think of it? I've never it was heard like of a this. really popular British television show. Top Gear? Top Gear. Yes, that's exactly really? that was it. Just a, that was just a guess. That's exactly it. So these guys, or I think Clarkson anyway, was from Top Gear. And then they had, remember they had a bunch of problems with, oh, the B yeah. with whoever, BBC or whoever it was. So then Amazon started a show with them called The Grand Tour. And so this is a game based on it. I don't know if it's going to be any good. It's at retail. Who knows? We'll I'm jealous out. you get to read this one. Holy potatoes, we're in space. Now, note that holy potatoes has an exclamation point after it, and we're in space has a question mark and an exclamation point after it. Comes to PS4. Space, the final French fried tier. Oh. Set out on in an intergalactic voyage of discovery, adventure, and potato-based puns in holy potatoes, we're in space. Combining hard-boiled battles, mash management, and scalloped simulation into a dish that's out of this world. I don't like it, but I also do like that you at least put a little bit of effort into it. So yeah, yeah. Fun. There's definitely work behind this. Appreciate that. Kingdom of Blades comes to PSVR. Play as a frontline warrior in, in the Three Kingdoms period of China. With nothing to depend on but your swords and your courage, you must uh, slash your way through hordes of enemies and face off against the most famous generals on your path to fame and glory. I've always been interested in reading the romance or like the Three Kingdoms, the romance of the Three Kingdoms and the Three Kingdoms like era literature from China is supposed to be really good. I, I didn't even know that those existed until I was like a late teenager or early in my 20s because there's like the video game series Romance of the Three Kingdoms and all of those and I'm like, yeah. oh, it's like a long running video game series. No, you fucking idiot, Colin. It's a fucking book series. Well, now you don't need to read it because the game's out. Thank God. <laughs> Animusha Warlords comes to PS4 at retail. Capcom's riveting Samurai Adventure 
adventure returns. This version includes the original game's intense swordplay and dramatic revenge story, plus improved controls, widescreen display, a new soundtrack, and more. Experience this enhanced version of the best-selling action-adventure classic. We will. We talked about it at the top. Don't know if I necessarily recommend it. Panda Hero comes to PS4. Release the panda in you! Take on the role of the mighty panda and tread your path unerringly. Skillfully dodge your attackers and sweep aside any creature standing in your way. Hyphen attack. With an exclamation point. Yeah, that, that's a weird one, right? I don't really understand that one. I like it. Attack! <laughs> Planet Rix 13 comes to PS4 and Vita. That's R-I-X. Planet Rix 13 is a classic 2D adventure with pixel art graphics. You are the pilot of a spacecraft that is exploring worlds potentially suitable for life. After losing control of your ship and making an emergency landing, it quickly becomes clear that you are not the first person on this planet. Smoke and Sacrifice comes to PS4. Smoke and Sacrifice sees Sachi, a mother forced to give up her son, adventure into a grotesque underworld on a quest that will lead her to a darker truth. As she ventures into a hidden land, will Sachi ever discover the truth of what happened to her son? Probably not. Maybe. Yeah, probably not. It's a sequel. Vane comes to PS4. That's V-A-N-E. In a ruined desert, a strange golden dust transforms a free-spirited bird into a determined young child. Holy shit. Setting off a chain of events that will reshape the world itself. From the team at Friend and Foe Games, Vane is a stunning, emotional, and unnerving experience. Sounds unnerving. Yeah. The Walking Dead, the final season, episode three, comes to PS4. After years on the road facing threats both living and dead, a secluded school might finally be Clementine and AJ's chance for a home. But protecting it will mean sacrifice. In this gripping emotional final season, your choices define your relationship, shape your world, and determine how Clementine's story ends. So pretty big deal. The third episode now coming yeah. from Skybound instead of Telltale. I think there's a four episode arc for this final season, so there should be one more after this, but it continues. So if you guys are looking forward to that, there you go. And finally, and this one's been a long time coming. Y2K, a postmodern RPG, and that's Y and then two with like the Roman numerals and K. I thought, I thought it was yeek. Yeek. A postmodern RPG. Y2K, a postmodern RPG, comes to PS4. In this surreal Japanese-style RPG set in the 90s, prepare to experience a conspiracy like no other. After witnessing a woman vanish from an elevator, college graduate Alex embarks on an adventure to rescue her, which spirals into an epic quest with stakes higher than he could have ever imagined. I'm looking forward to playing that. I think I'm going to play Would that you in do a few weeks. If you were in an elevator and, a, and you were standing next to a woman, she said, hey, what's, uh, oh, that's, that's a nice shirt, and you said, oh, thank you, and then she vanished, would you go about... Going on some adventure trying to save that person? I would probably struggle if I should tell the cops because... Yeah. At that point, I'm like, am I insane? Did I disappear her myself? Was that an aneurysm? Now, if you're in close proximity to a person in an elevator and she disappears or he disappears on the elevator and you were on that elevator, all signs are going to point to you. So I think my biggest conundrum would be, should I tell it? Will they believe my story? (laughs) Yeah. Will Will they they believe believe that this person vanished? No. Not likely. No. They're going to think I buried this person somewhere in the woods. So I think I would just maybe go on the adventure to... Because that's my only choice. Because I so. otherwise I remain quiet. And then someone looks at the camera or they figure it out something happened and I, you know, and then it becomes yeah. way worse. So I think my only choice is the Hobson's choice. I think I would go on the adventure personally, Chris. That's fair. Now, Chris, I wanted to wrap up today's episode with eight questions, additional questions, I should say, from the audience. And they're of various subject matter. And remember, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins last stand to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, just like these eight people did. In addition to all the people whose questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas we already read. Adam Laws wrote into us with the first question. He says, hey, Colin and Chris, are there any studios or developers that you are hoping to announce a new game this year? I personally am hoping for a new game from Gen Design. I loved Eco when I was a kid and thought Shadow of the Colossus was okay and couldn't get past the first area in The Last Guardian. I just really disliked it. But I really love the art style and the ideas that Yoweda and his team come up with. I would love to hear your thoughts and keep up the amazing work. Well, I don't think you're going to get a Gen Design game per se, because I don't really think that that studio exists anymore. But you're going to certainly get another Yoweda game. Maybe. I mean, who knows? Yeah, probably. But... 
Yeah, I mean, that's I totally understand your excitement for that. I mean, for a lot of people, Shadow of the Colossus in particular is considered the best game of all time. I, I certainly don't agree with that, but I know that a lot of people really, really love it. Are there any studios that have been quiet, Chris, that you'd be interested to hear more from this year? Honestly, I, I've got so much in my back catalog that even thinking about this question, like, physically hurt me. No, I, I understand <laughs> that. I, I think my answer would have been Obsidian had they not come out with that trailer for The, the Outer Worlds. Right. But aside from that, I've got enough. i got enough on my plate. Yeah, me too. I, we said about that, we talked about this jokingly, but I did mean it, in that if we went a year without any new games, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Just somehow, cosmically, someone's like, no games in 2019. Just play the games you already have. I'd be like, that's great. If yeah. we could do that for another year, even. That would be awesome. So I agree with you. I, I think that the name that came to mind for me when I read this question originally when I was putting this document together was I'd love to see what Tango is doing over in Japan. Tango Gameworks, for people that don't know, is a Bethesda owned studio. They've only made two games so far, the Evil Within and the Evil Within 2. My assumption is that they'll make another Evil Within game. This is, of course, run by, you know, some of the leads from the old Resident Evil team, which is why these games are so good, uh, including Mikami. So you know, I'd be interested to see more from them, but I'd like to see something different. Uh, I've never actually played The Evil Within, barring just a, a kind of a preliminary playthrough of the first one, so I don't have that much information on it. I know that people really like it, but they've been quiet for a little while. Be fun to see something from them, especially because all of other Bethesda studios, except for Arcane, I think we know what they're doing. So the next question comes from I-K-I-X-I-N. I don't know. It, it kicks in? It kicks in? I kicks in? It, it kicks it's not in. a real word, whatever yeah, it is. That's it, yeah. One of the biggest concerns in gaming is that when online services like PSN eventually cease to exist, people who buy physical copies of games for this generation will be shut out of luck if they want to play DLC or download patches that greatly improve the experience of a game. Even if you currently have an HDD with those things downloaded, that drive will eventually fail, and then you'll be stuck with incomplete copies of games. Your thoughts on this? This is a great point, Chris. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel about it because... It's true, but I really do hammer this point home over and over again. Are you really, and I want you to really honestly answer, not just you, but everyone out there. Are you really, really, in 2040, going to plug your PlayStation 4 in and then take a disc of Bloodborne and put it in the console? Are you really going to do that? Like, is that something that's really, really going to happen? Or is it more likely that you will have some sort of cloud-based computing console or system in 2040 where this will all be available to you and you won't have to worry about it. That's why I'm not too concerned about this, personally. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think, uh, I mean, I go back, I, I flew home and, and flew my uh, PS1 back, specifically so I could play some old games, and I've been doing that, but I've been doing that specifically because I have no other option, and I can't, I can't download them on PS4. The PlayStation Classic was a huge misstep so that was literally the only option but i doubt that in 40 years your only option to play bloodborne will be on a disc right exactly like i, I just i really question heavily this idea apart from retro collectors and all of that like there are here's an example there are like 45 million nes's in the world right now like and i'm not talking about nes classics original nes's and top loading nes's run from including famicom so from 83 to like 95 these things were manufactured how many of them honest to christ how many of them are hooked up and being played right now out of the 45 million of them, this 30 year old console, right? That's like the point I'm trying to make. So someone's always going to be interested in playing the fucking Sega Saturn, I'm sure. But yeah. like, is it really a big problem that we won't be able to play these PlayStation 4 games natively on PlayStation 4 in the future? I don't really think so, just because I don't think we're taking the long view of how these games will be accessible. You might have to buy it again. That's going to be a problem, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe your maybe PSN. If you buy it, but maybe by then, if you buy it again, it's probably going to be like five bucks. Exactly. So, and I'm just using, you didn't use, by the way, it kicks in. You didn't use Bloodborne as your example, but I'm just using that as an example. It is unfortunate that you have to have an online, you know, connection with a disc-based game, like we were talking about with Kingdom Hearts 3, to get everything. If you Or even Spyro. 
Right, exactly. Spyro's second two games in the in the Reignited trilogy are not even on the disc. So if you bought that and you live in like Montana and you don't have an internet connection or something, you're fucked. And I understand that, but it's something we kind of have to begin to kind of leave in the past because that's becoming less and less of a problem, I think. This reminds me, Chris, that we did get a correction, by the way. We were talking about PlayStation Classic and how your idea and my idea that it would have been cool to have this thing that connected to the PlayStation Network and download PS1 games. People did write in and say that PlayStation TV, which was the Vita that you could connect to your TV, technically did you allow you to do this. But no, it's not yeah, what we're talking you about. You know what we mean. Yeah, it's it, like it, a proper classic experience. Right, exactly. Like it's, with it, the controller it, and with the little system and all that. Right. Point well taken. But it, it's not exactly what we're looking for. For people that don't know, PlayStation Classic was, or I'm sorry, PlayStation it's even TV. It's more egregious, actually, yeah. that that exists already and it wasn't even thought about to be repurposed in that way. Right. It's true. PlayStation TV was this deck of cards shaped device that allowed you to play some Vita games and some PS1 classics on your TV and stream some stuff. No one bought it. No one cared about it. I don't even have one. And that's that's really unusual because I have I have three PS4s and three Vitas. And I Jesus don't, Christ. I don't have any. And I've bought three other PS4s for other people. So I'm contributing. I'm doing my part as the meme from Starship Troopers often reminds us. Dino Diamato. I'm sorry. Dino Diadamo is actually I'm, I'm, I'm becoming dyslexic myself this week. Yeah, it's contagious. He says, yo, Chris and Colin, while a lot of other chatter for PS5 is driven towards hardware and features, I was curious to know where you guys stood with the controller. PlayStation definitely has been the most conservative when it comes to their controller design over the years, although we've seen some minor changes. PS2 introduced the symmetrical analogs. PS3, that's actually not true. PS2 didn't introduce the symmetrical analogs. Yeah, PS1 that's weird. Did. PS2 introduced, you know, other things, though. PS3 introduced a gimmicky six-axis feature and wireless, and PS4 was the biggest change in ergonomic design as it's wider, seemingly to account for the touchpad. The touchpad is another failed gimmick, in my opinion, as developers haven't made much use of it like the six-axis before it. I'm curious to know what you guys think of these gimmicks, and if PlayStation should even bother with it for PlayStation 5, or maybe they should bring back those sweet PS3 boomerang controllers. So, Chris, you and I have talked about the PlayStation controllers, and this idea that, yeah, the touchpad is kind of a non-starter, but it can't go anywhere now because of its backwards compatibility with PS4, assuming PS4 5 is backwards compatible, which it will be. But what do you want to see them do with the controller itself? Like, should they keep the same form factor? Should they try something radically new? I kind of like their conservative viewpoint and their outlook on it because it brings continuity between the consoles on a visual and feel aesthetic, which doesn't exist on any other console, which I think is kind of cool. I was kind of disappointed with the PS3 controller when it first came out because I was like, oh, this is especially because it was so light and frail and weak. But I think that the like PS me, I'm not light. <laughs> You know, I, I don't necessarily care about gimmicks. I think they should attempt one just because it's always fun for the conversation. Uh, looking back, especially like we look back on the, on the touchpad now and it's not even really used as a touchpad anymore. It's more like it's it's just a big button, really, for most games. Yeah, so it's I'd the imagine, select button, basically. I wonder if you could find a way to maybe get rid of it because like there's no real modern releases that use it in any way. I guess like you could use it to type. It's definitely one of those things. It, it, and we've talked about this in the past where it reminds me of the Vita touchpad, the back touchpad. I think the touchscreen's fine on Vita, which some people didn't. I thought that was weird. But the back touch where it's like this thing just has to be on this now forever, yeah. even though no one uses it. It is used for remote play on PS4 because it acts as the L2 and R2 buttons on your PS4 controller. But people have to understand that the PS3 controller was the way it was. The original six axis light controller was because everyone hated the boomerang controller and they were out of time. They had no time to make something. They, it is literally a facsimile of the PS2 controller. So I understand that you know, with more time and maybe without that false start, we would have gotten something different and maybe offset. And I don't know what the case is, but I do like that when you place the PS1 and the PS1 DualShock and then PS2 and PS3, six axis and DualShock 3 and then DualShock 4, there's like a continuity between them. It's kind of cool. And, you know, if there was going to be a, a console, I think that really changed the game in a, in a form factor sort of way. Obviously, the controller is bulkier and wider, but 
you know, with even offset analog sticks, they would have done it already. I, I think that we're going to get something that looks very familiar on PlayStation 5, and I'm totally fine with that, personally. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that I would agree. The construction of the, con- you know, the controller is good. You know, do you remember when PlayStation 4 first came out in that first year or so, where some people's analog sticks were unraveling? Do you remember that? Like, I do. That never happened to me. I don't know why that was happening. Some it didn't happen were, to me either. I think it's the way some people play, uh, you know, but not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> excusing the controller shouldn't do that. But it obviously passed some sort of testing based on some way people don't play versus the way they do play. Because I remember seeing controllers like just unraveled on the analog sticks. Yeah, I remember that. Which was weird. You don't see that anymore. That happened so. a lot with uh, GameCube yeah. also. Scott Lammers wrote into us and said, I wish I would have thought to ask you about this last week before the event took place, but oh well. What are your thoughts on the Games Done Quick marathons? Thoughts on speedrunning in general? Within the past year, I have started looking up speedruns when I finish playing a game. It can sometimes be quite humbling to see the strats people use through the areas you struggled with. So I think they do it a couple times a year, but they just finished their last one. They raised a bunch of money. It's a really great, you know, thing that they do for charity. Yeah. And for people that don't know, it's basically a series. People go in person and sit in rooms and stuff and watch people play games like experts play specific games and they live stream it. So you can watch some popular games and some lesser known games. Like last year, I watched someone speedrun Kid Icarus and shit. It was cool. I think it's a cool thing. It's just not something that really ever appealed to me. Right. My brother and I have talked on Knockback, which is our retro nostalgia podcast, about how I like playing games in a way I call elegant. What I is, like playing games mean? elegantly. I'm really good at Mega Man. Like, I'm really, really good at Mega Man. But I don't speedrun Mega Man. Like, I don't try to break the game and get through things as quickly as possible. Like, I like not getting hit. I like, like, elegantly right. jumping around and beating bosses without getting hit and stuff. And it takes a little longer. But it's played with skill. Now, speedrunning takes an incredible amount of skill, but it's and, and it takes a incredible amount of learning and understanding and delving and commitment, but it's not how I want to play. So I enjoy the art of it. I enjoy watching it and I have no problem with it, but it's just not. It doesn't appeal to you. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't exactly. go out of your way. Like I've, I've gone out of my way to watch it a couple of times. The, the, the shit that people do with Super Mario 64 is actually insane. Like the, the amount of things that I've seen in that game that I, I can't even explain or visualize conceptually right now is mind-blowing. And no, I, I love it. It's super cool. It's just it's, super it's cool really subculture neat. of games. It's like cosplay, for instance, right? Like, I don't get into it at all, but I see how popular... I mean, I go to these conventions, not so much anymore, but I go to these conventions and I see the pictures and I see the girls and guys on Instagram and stuff with hundreds of thousands, millions of followers. So clearly... You know, it's for somebody, and I, I look well, at. I, it, I admire. Know. I admire some cosplay too. In, in the same way, like I, I, I won't go out of my way to look for it, but if I see it, I'm definitely going to appreciate it. Especially like uh, if I see like a Games Done Quick thing happening, I'll, I'll put it on. Right, hundred percent. Right. I, I won't go out of my way, but if it's there, yeah, I'll watch it. Cosplay is interesting to me just because it's so. It takes so much dedication, especially yeah. the people. Like I actually, the cosplay stuff I find most interesting are the videos and like tutorials about how things are made, as opposed to like seeing them. And I'm like, I don't really care about you wearing this. It's more interesting that you made this from scratch. It's like some of these people have talent like well beyond the cosplay realm, like where they should be making clothes yeah. or something like that. But to me, like I look at that situation and I'm like, I know some people in it and it's cool. I f- struggle to find the time to even play games. So I couldn't imagine playing the game and then being dedicated enough to like, you know, write fan fiction or make cosplay outfits or doing anything like that. But it doesn't mean that it's not for someone. Yeah. So that's it's the always, way it's always impressive. I have some yeah. friends who, who who work in props and they like they make props for like films and stuff and it's definitely a talent that requires a, a lot of eccentricities it's super cool i think one of the things that adds texture to our gaming community is are these disparate things that don't yeah. appeal it's like even let's plays like i put up let's plays and stuff but i don't watch them like i know people like watching me play games and we're going to do our let's play soon but clearly other people like them so it's just that's what makes the texture and what makes gaming so exciting to me is that 
there are people like me that play single player games. There are people like you that maybe don't mind multiplayer games, but like single player games too, but you don't really care much for narrative, but I care a lot about narrative. It's all this Venn diagram. And I think that's what's exciting. So I think games done quick and all that and speed running is just a part of that texture, part of that fabric. And I think that that's pretty cool. And I think it's cool that they do it for charity as well. Kenneth Ohms wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about Microsoft paying users for competing, completing rather a certain amount of achievements through gift card points. I feel like it's the natural next step for Sony's trophy system and a cool little gimmick to get people to achievement hunt. Hope you all are well and cheers to my favorite podcast, as Colin put it in his solo episode about two depressed guys talking about PlayStation. That is how I describe Sacred Symbols. <laughs> it's, it's not inaccurate. But uh, also, is that a thing? Is, is Microsoft, is that a thing? That's so happening? I saw this in passing. I didn't read too much into it, but I did see it in passing on Twitter that apparently like they are giving out, giving out gift cards for a certain amount of achievement points earned. I don't know if it's achievement points in certain games. The problem with this, Chris, to me is I would love something like that. But the problem is, is that the trophy ecosystem, the economy of trophies is so broken that it would be easy to, to manufacture a, a ton of, like I can go online if I really wanted to right now today. I have 76 Platinums, I think, something like that. I could finish by midnight. I could have a hundred like yeah. easy. Like I could just go download a bunch of games that are made that with half an hour platinums. It's funny because I was going to tweet about this, but I couldn't find an elegant way to do it in the character count where when I was a younger trophy whore, when in 2008 <laughs> in summer of 2008 trophies came out and I would play games for trophies and I would see, you know, I'd play the regular games I was going to play, but I'd also seek out easy games for trophies. And it's evolved to the point where I'm actually actively avoiding games that give me trophies too easily because I'm embarrassed to have them on my list. Like there are people with a bunch of platinum trophies with these garbage platinums like that don't really play anything right. notable for platinum trophies. They just have this nonsense. And without that ecosystem being more readily taken care of, which I really think is something Sony has to do. Like I really think Sony needs to step in at some point and be like, we need to regulate this market because <laughs> it matters because then you can't do cool shit like this. Right. If you have an unregulated market of trophies, I know this sounds silly, like, but if you have an unregulated market where like a platinum doesn't really mean anything, like you can plug in like that Rick's 13 game that I was talking about that's on Vita. I was like, oh, that looks cool. I looked it up. And then I saw that everyone has all the trophies. Like everyone that played the game has all the trophies. And I'm right. like, this so it's is just, it's just like one of those that you could just like play through it and immediately. Right. Like, I'm like, yeah. this is fucking dumb because I have the platinum in Bioshock and it's worth the same exact amount as the platinum in this game that took a half an hour for people to complete. And I know it doesn't matter to some people, but it matters in the sense that if you want to do cool things based on the trophy economy, then trophies have to mean more than what they mean now. And so I think it's imperative on Sony to clamp down on this stuff and say, like, you don't have to play a game for 100 hours to be. But you can't be earning trophies like to this clip. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And for me, it's like, be careful what you ask for, because we wanted shit like this for a while. And then they gave it to us. And I'm like, this sucks. So for the last few years, I've totally avoided playing games for trophies. I play games for trophies if I like the game, but yeah. I won't just put the game in and be like, all right, I'm going to get the trophy stick. Cause then I'd have 125 or 150 platinums. And what does it mean? If anything, I'd go through my trophy list if I could and delete a bunch of shit that I'm like, why do I have this? Like, why do I have a platinum trophy in cloudy with a chance of meatballs? Because I went out of my <laughs> way to actually? get Yeah, I do. Or or <laughs> up or Rango, you know? Like yeah. I would literally remove probably 15 or 20 of my own platinum trophies if I could. But obviously you can't do that. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying it would be cool to do that. And I'd be interested to see how Microsoft is managing that because it is also a problem in their ecosystem. But until trophies have an economy that means something and it's not inflated, we can't do cool shit. And yeah. that's a shame. Yeah, that's so trophies remain just digital things. You can't do anything with them. It's an interesting thought. Like, is it like a turn? It, I don't understand. Is it like a tournament? Like, see who can like get the most trophy or the most achievements the quickest? Because that would be a problem in the sense of like re games release at different times. That's true too. Or you could just save up a bunch of games and then just quickly get a thousand points. Yeah. If you were doing it on Xbox. Uh. So Weird. that's the shame is that I know some people, first of all, there's two groups of people. There's a group of people that think no one cares about trophies, which is wrong. I mean, that's stupid. 
There's another group of people that think trophies are the be all end all and they're wrong too. But they do matter and they are a meta game that matters to people. And it would be if they just paid more attention to it, you could do so much cool shit with trophies. And if you don't pay attention to it, then they just become these digital relics that don't mean anything. And I'm not saying you necessarily have to earn money by playing a game. I'm just saying that one man's 80 Platinums is different than another man's 80 Platinums. It's not like having $80. Yeah, for sure. Joe Pagler or Pagler or Pagler said, hey, Colin and Chris, I have been a longtime listener and finally got with the program and signed up for your Patreon. Thank you so much, Joe. I have a quick question for you. I have owned a Vita since its release and it's still going strong. However, I will be traveling to Japan next month and I'm debating on buying a backup Vita while in Tokyo. Is there any reason not to buy the Vita while in Japan? Regional lock, power cord, uh, extension, etc. I tried looking this up but couldn't find a clear cut answer. Thank you for all you do. Well, that's definitely your wheelhouse. Yeah, so no. PlayStation Vita is not region locked. And I had a Japanese Vita. So you can play your... Because it gives you language options and stuff when you turn it on. They're the same no matter where you buy it as far as I know. You might want to, again, look this up but it seems like you can't find the answer. As far as I know... You can play your Japanese Vita with American games or Western games. Now, the one thing you did leave out that is useful information to me, Joe, is that we don't know where you're from. The reason I say that is because you can go to Japan from America and plug in your phone or your Vita and it's going to charge right. But you can't go from Japan to Europe and do that. And so if you're European, you're going to need to buy an extension or some sort of converter. But I think that they all deal with it the same way. So you have to look into that. But PlayStation Vita fundamentally is not region locked. Jason Price wrote into us. And said, hey, lads, this is my first week as a patron, and it's been great. Thank you so much, Jason. Sony put out a coming attractions video for 2019 that included The Last of Us 2 and Death Stranding. Does this change your mind at all on these titles releasing this year, or is it just Sony's marketing machine at work? So I saw this, and I guess it kind of puts these games... Oh, The Last of Us has always been in play. I guess it kind of puts Death Stranding in the play. I don't Uh, believe it. Yeah, I don't either. I, I, I don't know that... I just don't know that it could possibly even be ready this year. Just based on Kojima's trajectory and what it is to make a game and a new IP and putting a team together, I just don't see how the timeline fits. It just doesn't make any sense. So they're putting it in there to keep you maybe wondering and guessing and maybe... Maybe they have some sort of far-flung intention of releasing it this fall or something, but I I don't think so. Yeah, maybe they'll do uh, maybe they'll do like a Ground Zeroes type deal. Maybe they'll have like some crazy demo. Did you like that? No, because I thought that. Well, that was, that was no- definitely a Konami thing where it was like we got to make money this year. That was yeah. definitely a Konami decision. Th- that so annoyed the shit out of me. Yeah, it was it's pretty obvious what it was. For people that don't know, Ground Zeroes was a game that came out I think in 2014. That was kind of the prequel to Phantom Pain, Metal Gear Solid Five. It was just a short experience, and it was so weird. You know, yeah. it really was just a weird move that Yeah, it was I'm, like it was basically it was a demo. It was a demo that you paid for, really. Yeah, it would have been cool if they were like, you know, pre-order Metal Gear Solid 5 and get the demo for free. But you went and had to buy it. I think it was even I think it might have even been like 39.99 or something. It was. So, that was weird. I don't know. So, yeah, I'm starting to question The Last of Us 2 coming out this year based on mocap stuff and the way Neil Druckmann has been talking about the game and the fact that Naughty Dog is going to take all the time they need anyway. So let me put it this way. I don't think Death Stranding is coming out this year. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. It's a coin flip for me now on if The Last of Us is going to come out this year. Just based on what you're seeing, I mean, if they're going to wrap the game up, if the game is going to be wrapped up in time for a summer release, for instance, would they really be mocapping still? I don't think so. I mean, you would have to have be pretty content complete even at this point and start really stitching the game together in a final way and start actually entering you know, your alphas and beta phases as a content complete game. So The Last of Us, a complete coin flip for me. I'm actually starting to edge towards it not coming out this year. And I don't think that that stranding is going to come out this year. If anything, now we have Days Gone in April. I assume Dreams is going to come out and maybe Ghost of Tsushima. Ghost of Tsushima? Maybe. That's about it. If The Last of Us and Death Stranding aren't. Yeah. The only other thing I can think of is that there's another game that they haven't announced that might be a second party game or something that might be, you know, an Until Dawn or The Order type game. 
that's yeah. not made internally, but the publisher. But I, I don't think so. I, I think they're perfectly happy letting it ride at this point. So we'll yeah. see. We'll see how it all goes down. Final question, Chris. Final question of the day comes from Jacob Bell. Let's do it. He said, hello, gents. My question is for Chris. From the beginning of Sacred Symbols, you've made it clear that gameplay and graphics reign supreme over narrative structure for you. This I understand because the narrative-driven games you respect but don't necessarily like to play have similar gameplay elements between them. See your JRPGs, Telltale, and Gone Home, or even The Last of Us. But in the last episode of Sacred Symbols, you brought up a problem with Hitman Absolution. Your complaint was that the missions were threaded narratively. My question is why, when the gameplay within Hitman 2 and Hitman Absolution are so similar, does narrative become a detractor for you? No, that's a, that's a good question. I think I probably worded my argument poorly last time. It's not necessarily that it's, what is it, structured? It's not necessarily that it's it's threaded narratively. It's more so that the game felt more like a narrative than a sandbox, which is not traditional Hitman. Like everything about that game from like the more heavy narrative focus to the fact that the camera is closer to Agent 47, which is something you'd see more typically in like an Arkham game. It, everything about the design felt like this is an action game. This is a linear game. Levels feel more like levels than they do sandboxes. So it's not necessarily that they're threaded narratively. I've, I've got no problem with that. It, the problem comes when you've got a franchise that is specifically known for being very experimental with its levels and, and having arenas that are all entirely based around manipulating AI to do certain things and having a lot of choices to, or having a lot of ways to go about one specific task. And Absolution just didn't really feel like it lived up to that at all. And I feel like every game after it has been significantly better. It's not the narrative that's the problem. It's the fact that it came at the expense of the freeform sandbox that the franchise was typically known for. Yeah, I think I understood what you meant at the time even, which was that you're really contrasting linearity to sandbox gameplay or open world non-linearity. Yeah, yeah it's not necessarily a narrative thing. And, and I totally understand that because Hitman not necessarily being super narrative driven, but you still don't want a linear structure, which would add to the narrative inherently. So I understand completely what you mean by that. Yeah. And I appreciate the question, Jacob, as we clarified Chris's thoughts. I, that's all I have for this episode 29 of Sacred Well, look Simples. at that. Uh, I somehow made it. You are. You're, I feel you're, like an idiot because I didn't say much because my, my throat's exploding. You're not in great shape today. We're going to let you go home, go sleep it off, and we'll we'll be right back. Hopefully, I'll be better. If you're dead, we'll have to replace you, but nah, I don't know. That's, a, that's I, right. I don't know. There's plenty of Chris's. So. There are a lot of Chris's. We, we'll just keep it. Yeah, we've already covered that, that we can just, we'll find another Chris. Yeah. So there are other Colin Moriarty's in the world. So I'm sure we can find another. Are there Chris. really? Yeah. So I, I'm sure we can find another Chris Maldonado. Chris, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come do the show, even though you're not feeling well. And we appreciate everyone out there being patient with Chris's illness as he dies. Uh, but <laughs> we will hopefully resuscitate him in time with a Phoenix down, perhaps. Yeah. For uh, the next episode. In the meantime, we appreciate all of you guys supporting us. Remember, if you listen on free feeds, leave us nice reviews and share us with your friends. It really does help us a lot. Obviously, subscribe on on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you want to listen. If you do want to support us, get the show ad-free and three days before everyone else, go to patreon.com slash Stand and sign up. It means a lot. Those perks, including the ability to submit questions, exclusive podcasts, all the rest, do carry over to my other shows as well. So it's a lot of bang for your buck. A lot of people do say that Collins Last Stand's Patreon gives you the best bang for your buck. And damn it, if I don't agree with that assessment. I can't argue. Why bother? Don't argue with it. Yeah, why bother? Don't resist it. I don't Just have the to argue. No, don't, yeah, you don't have it. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept whatever the fuck. I'm going to carry you like a baby downstairs and put you in the back of the Uber. Is that what you want me to do? <laughs> no, it's raining. Uh, well, I don't even want to go outside. Well, you I want to call the Uber and have it pick me up in the lobby. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Well, yeah. Yeah, put a, I think they have a little note field now or something like that where you can course yeah, can you the drive rider? through the glass, yeah, please? Yeah, just <laughs> sidle up if you can. Right along the glass in front and we'll get sidle. into the car. That's a good word. It is. It's a nice word. Word of the day. Word of the day is sidle. Thank you guys so much for your love, your kindness, your support. We'll see you next time for Sacred Symbols. And that's it. Goodbye.
Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. CJ Anderson, Morgan Ashley, Ethan Barbie, Sean Battershaw, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancato, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel Diamore, Daniel Delanicos, Mitchell Durkash, Martha Emery, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fantana, Fodios Frank, Connor Gagian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Toothless Gibbon, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Caleb Hager, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hagel, Asa Haas, Azan Isa El Ricey, Josh Yeager, Justin Yeager, Greg Juleps, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Christian Larson, Jackson Lastiqua, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lewin Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M., Ryan T. Mann, Peter Mark, Nicholas Mask, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Dennis Meinshin, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Middling, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, George Anthony Nunez, Brian Ott, Israel Petrico, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius S. Peterson, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Matthew Plaster, Lawrence F. Prokop, John Quinn, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riebenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Michael Shanholz, Toby Schu- Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, John Tabanillo, Ahmad Tamar, Joseph Thayer, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Adam Van Curen, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Mike Wayne, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Wyatt Henry, Throw7, Infinite, Mad Mock Media, Mubarak, Sticks and Crits, Richter86, That Rescue Guy, Andrew, Ian, Dav9834, Titus Rex, Donk2015, Gavin, and Random Guy Radio. Yeah, the worst part of it is that it's it, it is that it doesn't it's not even pain. Like I can handle physical pain. You break my leg, I was like, ah, damn it, my leg's broken, ah, shit. But, like, it's just so discomforting in the most minute way. I'm just going to put this at the end of the episode out of context. (laughs) It's going to be great. Good.